colleges and universities in Europe. She teaches about yoga. Um, and she has got many, many years' experience in teaching both children and adults, at least three years in both fields. Uh, so she travels all over the world teaching and sharing this kind of knowledge. So personally, I feel very honored that she's with us in Bloemfontein. And for all of you, you're, you're very fortunate to catch her, because she only comes to South Africa once a year. Never mind Bloemfontein, only to South Africa once a year. So um, without much ado, her book is available at Amazon up there, The Great Mantra for Mystic Meditation. She has a book, uh, so you can check that out. I can't, also, I can't actually open the page on this yeah, thing. I can, just, I can just show you where the, where the link is. And then we have another... Our other one is here. So again, I can't actually open the page and show you on this computer. Oh, that's her Learn to Read series. Which were 33 volumes? 83 books. 83 books. And they're sound-enabled. You can hear them in 25 languages just by touching them with a special device. Huh? Learn to read Learn to read English. For younger people. Yeah, it's designed for children, but anyone who wants to learn English as a second language. So, um, yeah... Please go ahead, uh, Rumila. She's known to us as Rumila, and in the secular uh, world, Dr. Eden. Yes. So thank you for coming, guys. Okay. Nice to be here. And we're looking at whether or not reincarnation is fact or fiction. So basically, reincarnation. Well, it's kind of hard to see all of you. Maybe I'll move up here. Do that. So. Reincarnation basically answers the question of why do I have the life that I have? Why do I have the body that I have? Why was I born in the family that I was born into? Why do I have the circumstances of my life? You know, we talk about how all people are equal. It's one of the main tenets in America where I'm from, right? That all people are created equal. But what we mean by that is that everyone's equal under the law. That everybody should be treated equally legally. But we know that no two of us, on a material level, are fully equal in all respects, right? Some people are more beautiful than others. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are more, you know, strong and athletic than others. Some people are born into situations of greater prosperity than others. So why does that happen? Why, why are our lives so different, right? Why is it that 10 people can do the same work, but they get very different results, so the science of reincarnation answers that by explaining that all of creation, all of existence, is really based on desire. It's based on desire. And that each of us, by our desires, are the architects of our own fortune and our own situation. Did I lose this? If it's on my sorry, it'll move even more. Okay. Or do I have to? Yeah. Sort of, kind of. Here. Uh, so you might say, well, I don't, that's way too bad. That I, I didn't exactly desire the specifics of my situation in this life, but we have desires that lead to those specifics. Just like if a person does something that's criminal, they don't really desire to go to jail, but their criminal desires led to them going to jail. Therefore, their going to jail is really a response to their desires. Does that make sense to everybody? If a person takes some kind of drug or alcohol, it's not that they desire to become an addict, but their desire to take the intoxicant may lead to that effect. 
So you can say that that becoming of an addict and lying in the gutter and their vomit is the result of their own desires. Do you all follow that? So reincarnation is, is this science, that what we're getting is what we desire. And our desires cannot all be fulfilled in one life or in one kind of body. You know, if in this body I want to fly without a machine, I can't do it. I have to get a different kind of body. And each body in each situation is good at fulfilling certain desires. So therefore, that's why there's death, by the way. So therefore, there's death where one forgets one circumstance and one situation, and therefore can fully be involved in one's desires and the fruit of one's desires. And the way reincarnation works is what we want. Now, not just what we desire in the sense that, oh gosh, you know, I'd really like to be a doctor. But what you do, <laughs> you know, what, what you desire as evidenced by what you do. And this is sometimes called the law of karma. Karma literally means activity. Or we may think of karma as meaning the reactions to our activity. But we do what we desire. Hmm? And then those actions we do that are based on our desires have certain responses, certain reactions. Now, some of the responses may come immediately. If you eat too much, you immediately get a stomachache. And some responses are delayed. Like when I was coming into South Africa from Brazil, they said I had to have a yellow fever certificate. And you have to wait 10 days after getting the vaccine before you can enter the country. Why? Because if you get infected with yellow fever, it takes 10 days before the disease, up to 10 days for the disease to manifest. So some reactions have some delay. You know, I do something good for someone, I may not see a positive result from that sometimes for years. Isn't it sometimes like that? If you do something good, you do something bad, even in this life, sometimes you don't see the reaction to that for many years. Isn't that a fact? Right? Many years later, you see something. So some karma we get, some karma we actually get immediately in this life, and some we really can't get in this life. Some, uh, this, the, this body and this life is not suitable for getting those, those responses to the things that we do, which we can label good and bad, although that's, we label them good or bad as far as whether we like the effects or not. That's why we call them good or bad. But all, all karma, in one sense, is bad, because all karma is tying us into the cycle of desires and getting other bodies. Now you can say, well, what's the evidence for reincarnation? So the primary evidence is that given by the engineer of reality, or God, as given in the scriptures. So in our sacred literature, in the Bhagavad Gita, it's very explicitly stated that after death, we go into a new body. There's a verse, Dehi no smin yuta dehe komarom yovanam dura tata dehantara praptir dearest tatra namuyate. That's in Sanskrit. And what that verse means is that even in this life, we really don't have only one body. I mean, if I had photographs of everyone in this room when they were two months old and I put them on the wall, would you be able to match? Probably not, right? It's not like we have a two month old body and it just got bigger and bigger like a balloon. We have a different body. I mean, according to science, the cells in our bodies have all changed. There's not one single cell in my body now that was there when I was two months old. And if we all live to be 85, 95, you know, and you had the photographs of us now and the photograph at 95, you wouldn't be able to match that either, would you? 
So really, we're changing bodies in this life. But we have a sense of continuing identity. We have a sense of continuing identity. And the Bhagavad Gita says, just like we have a sense of continuing identity from the time we're a baby in this life, to a child, to a youthful person, to middle age, to old age, in the same way, we will get a completely new body in the next life. So Bhagavad Gita is very, very explicit, very clear, yes, pretty much everyone, we'll tell you the two exceptions, but pretty much everyone, when you, when you die, die is really just leaving this body. It's something like if your clothes are old or even your clothes are dirty, you take them off, you put them in the wash, and you get a new set of clothes. So that's how reincarnation is explained in the Bhagavad Gita. You get a new set of clothes. Of course, the new set of clothes you get is not only a new identity, not only a new body, but it's also a new sense of identity, right? Because in our lifetime, our identity is very much tied up with this body and this mind and this circumstance. So you're really pulling on a new identity by which to experience a new set of desires and the responses to your other desires. Now, in other scriptures like the Bible, and I've written down some quotes here, the indications of reincarnation are indirect. So you won't find a statement in the Bible that says specifically, when you die, you enter into another body. But, for example, in Jeremiah it says that God knew us before we were formed in the womb. Well, that supposes that we existed before we were in the womb. And, of course, the two evidences that are quoted the most often is when Jesus saw a blind man. It's mentioned uh, in John 9.1. And the disciples asked Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it due to his sin or his parents' sin? Now, the person was born blind. So how could he have done a sin except in another lifetime? Of course, Jesus said it wasn't either. It was due, It was so the works of God could be manifest in him. But Jesus didn't say, well, that's a silly question. How can you talk about his sin when he was born blind? Of course, also John the Baptist is said to be Elijah. Jesus himself said John the Baptist is Elijah. Now, how could he be Elijah unless there's something called reincarnation? So scriptures like the Bible and the Quran, they indirectly point to reincarnation, whereas a scripture like the Bible Gita very directly talks about reincarnation. So that's the main evidence, that if we believe that there's a God and God created everything, then he ought to know how things work. Yes? Right? The, the person who created the air conditioning system and the plumbing system in this building, they're the best people to tell you how it works. Now, we also have what we would call empiric evidence. So we have many, many people who spontaneously remember other lives. So a very a famous researcher, Ian Stevenson, who worked for the University of Virginia, he compiled evidences of 2,000 people who spontaneously remembered their previous lives. And for each of these people, they checked out the evidences. You know, they went back to the place where they said they had lived before, and the person would say, yes, you know, we buried our money over here, or my uncle's name was this, and it would be correlated. She was able to get 2,000 cases like that. Now, most of these cases happen with very young children. Generally, people who remember their previous lives, their remembrances are start sometime, they start articulating them sometime around age two, and by around age five to seven, those memories start fading as they really get involved in their new life. And there's a number of, of books and videos that you can see if you do some research on the internet of children who claim to remember their previous lives and where there's been quite a lot of research done 
to substantiate those claims. Then you know, we also have stories in our sacred writings of people who remembered their previous lives spontaneously. So one was of a great king who, when he abdicated his kingdom to his heir, he went to the forest to practice yoga. And there he ended up taking care of an orphan deer. When he died, he was absorbed in thoughts of the deer, took birth as a deer, and then in the third life, he took birth as a sage. And in that life as a sage, he could remember his life both as a deer and as a king. We also have a story in our sacred literature of an elephant who could remember his previous life as a king, and a lizard who could also remember his previous life. So we have a number of stories in our scriptures of people who recount their previous lives. Of course, sometimes people can remember previous lives through hypnotic regression, and that's a little controversial. To what extent are people's remembrance under hypnotic regression valid? But again, you have instances where it can be collaborated. I mean, certainly some instances can't be, but there are enough instances where it can be collaborated, where the person under hypnosis will talk in a language that they had no way of knowing. Sometimes they'll talk in a language that isn't even spoken on the planet anymore. And they'll be able to direct the researchers, this is where I lived, and they can go and collaborate their testimony. Now, you could say, well, there might be alternative explanations for either remembrances under hypnosis or spontaneous remembrances. But we'll find the alternative explanations are just as fantastic as the more obvious one of reincarnation. I mean, in order for a person to remember details about another life that can be corroborated, if they didn't actually live that other life, what's the other explanation? Either they would have had to have done extensive research, but many times they know details that no one else but intimate members of the family would know. So what would be another explanation? They'd have to have some kind of paranormal ability to be able to read the minds of this other family and know the information that way. So the only other explanation is also a paranormal explanation, and the most sensible and direct explanation is that they're really remembering previous lives. Some other evidence is of that of prodigies. So children who at a very young age demonstrate some sort of talent or ability without any kind of training in it. So of course we have someone like Mozart who was writing symphonies at a young age. Uh, but even today you will find many, many people who have some sort of amazing talent in childhood in which they got no training at all. Someone sent me a video a while ago of this little eight or nine-year-old girl who could sing opera like an adult. You wonder how she could even do it biologically, you know, physiologically. And she never had any training. They said, how did you learn? She said, oh, I would just watch videos on YouTube, and that's how I learned. So where does that come from? Now, generally, when we die and go into a new body and a new identity, we forget these sort of talents. But every once in a while, if a person's attachment to these talents is very strong, they may carry it with them. Now, almost all of us have some sense, we may not be prodigies, but we have some sense of things that we're good at and certain things come to us much more easily than others. You know, why is it that, that we seem to have, each of us seems to have a natural aptitude for certain things? So that can also be explained by the fact that we may have been developing that for many, many, many lifetimes, especially if we're very expert in something in this life. 
Now, we talked about the basic process by which we reincarnate. The basic process is that of desires, which manifest as actions, which give us reactions. So the desires themselves propel us into different circumstances to experience those desires, and we may also, to experience the reactions, have to go into various circumstances. Now, there's a third factor which also deals with desire, and that is explained in the Bhagavad Gita in the 8th chapter. A verse that goes, It says, whatever you think about at that moment of death, that determines your next life. So when I was a teacher of children, one time I took my class on a field trip, and on the way back we saw billows of black smoke in the sky. And the children said, oh, I want to go see, I want to go see. So we went, and there was this apartment building on fire. It was eight apartments in one building. We saw this young woman standing on the pavement without shoes, surrounded by her three little children. And she said some neighbor had been cooking with oil and went to answer the phone, and the oil caught fire, the fire went up the wall. And the woman, as she's running out of the house, she just grabs her children. Now, she didn't take her shoes, she didn't take her wallet, she didn't take her grandma's photos. You know, she took her children. So death is very much like that. At the time of death, we're losing everything, right? We're losing this body. We're losing all of the knowledge that we stored up, all of our connections with other people, all of our possessions. It's worse than your house burning down. You know, it's really the the whole identity that we've built up over the lifetime, being taken away. And internally, we try to grab, just like this woman grabbed her children, we try to grab whatever in our life was the most important to us. So one of the many things that death does is it's a test of what is really the most valuable. I mean, you know, we all say, oh, this is my priority in life, right? But how do you know what's your real priority? (laughs) How do you know what's really important? Like you can say, well, what's really important can be judged by how you spend your money. Or what's really important can be judged by how you spend your time. Ultimately, what's really important to each of us is judged by what we grab onto at that moment when we're leaving. Okay, you got to leave. Your house is burning down. What are you going to take? So it's really, that's also certainly an indicator of desire. But our general desires throughout our life, well, I think I'd like to experience that. Well, I wonder what that would be like. Well, I'd like to have that. Well, I'd like to be there. Well, I'd like to do this. Our desires is evidenced by the things that we do, which then have some sort of response that we then experience, and our desires at the time of death. So all these three things determine into what body we go. Now, once we understand the science of reincarnation, it eliminates the only logical argument against the existence of God. I mean, anybody can understand that this desk was created by somebody intelligent or even something simpler, you know, something simpler. Well, this, this cloth I'm wearing, it's this, this sorry, it's not sewn. It's just one piece of fabric. There's no stitches done in it anywhere. So it's, it's something very simple, but yet you can see it has a pattern in it, right? It was done by somebody with some intelligence. It wasn't done by a one-year-old child. It wasn't done by a chimpanzee. So what to speak of, you know, this has some design that looks something sort of kind of like flowers. So what to speak of the real flowers? The real flowers had had to be done by a designer. 
You know, archaeologists, when they dig, they can tell the difference between a random rock and a stone arrowhead, right? Something that was made by intelligence. So what's the only logical argument against the existence of God? Is that which is called the problem of evil. The problem of evil. That if there is a creator, if there is a designer, must be somebody extremely intelligent and extremely capable. So why would that extremely intelligent and capable person allow so much incredible suffering and evil in life? And reincarnation answers that question. Reincarnation explains everything that's happening to everybody is a result of our own actions and our own desires, and it's a perfectly fair system if you see the whole picture. If you just look at one life, it may not look very fair. You know, I, I remember one time that a child in one of my classes was causing a disturbance, and I said to her, I think you need to leave the classroom and go sit outside, you know, go stand in the hallway for a few minutes until you can calm down. So just at that moment, her father came to visit and found her standing in the hallway and said to her, oh, did you mean teacher make you stand in the hallway? Right? So I go out after, I don't know, one or two minutes, and there she is on her father's lap, and he's, you know. <laughs> he didn't see what happened in the classroom. You know, he didn't see how she picked up her math book and was throwing it at one of the other students and turned the chair upside down. And he didn't see that. So when he comes and finds her standing in the hallway, he's thinking, oh, my poor little kid. She has to stand out in the hallway and not be in the classroom. So it's, it's exactly like that because we don't see the actions and the desires that people had in other lifetimes. We just see in this lifetime. We think, oh, it's not fair. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of undue, unnecessary suffering in the world. There's a lot of people who do evil things that don't seem to, to get a reaction for it. People who do good things who seem to have a difficult situation. So understanding this reincarnation, we see, no, it's not like that at all. It's really a perfect system that's responding to our own desires as evidenced by our own actions. Now, there are two kinds of situations in which people don't reincarnate. One which is really awful, and one which is really wonderful. So the one that's really awful is when a person gets stuck. Kind of like if you're in a lift, an elevator, that's gotten stuck between floors. So sometimes what happens is when a person dies, by dying we mean that the real self, the real identity, leaves that body. Somehow that person, that self, doesn't progress to another body but gets stuck. Now that stuck state we call a ghost. You see, we, the real self, are covered by two temporary, artificial, false identities. One is this body made out of skin and bones and blood and muscles, etc. And the other, internally, is a body made of thoughts, feelings, and desires. We call that the subtle body or the astral body. And it has a form. You know, people who can see ghosts, they'll say that the ghost looks like the person had looked like in their body during life. You've heard that? Yes? You know, if the person had red hair during life, the ghost will appear to be somebody with red hair. And that, what, what, is, what is the ghost? You're looking at the soul inside of a mental body. So that mental body has a form. Whatever we think, whatever we feel, whatever we desire, creates this mental body. And then what happens is we get a gross body that fits 
that mental body, just like the shirt fits on my arm. So sometimes if the person can't accept that I've left my body, you know, we all have see people with experiences like that in this life, there's some big change and they can't accept it. You know, when I was young, I had a family member who was uh, living a very wealthy life in a big city, and then their, their business lost a lot of money, and they had to move to a very simple home in the country. And the person just couldn't accept it. They couldn't accept, like, I've lost my money, and now I'm living in a simple house. They were always traveling to the city and seeing their old friends and just sitting around in their country house lamenting, oh, oh why did I lose everything? Why did I lose everything? They, they didn't pick up and start their new life. You follow? Sometimes you see people in this kind of situation. You know, someone that they love leaves them and they're just, they don't go on. They're just there. Why can't I be with them? All they ever think about is that person. So that sometimes happens also at the time that we leave the body. That the person just can't accept that that body's over. That body's finished. I'm meant to go to a new life. And they usually hang around the dead body or they hang around their family or they hang around their friends and mostly they don't really even understand that they died. That they're just like, can't you hear me? You know, they'll try to be talking to people and doing things and they get very frustrated. Now, nobody stays a ghost forever. At a certain point, some of the higher entities in the universe or sometimes compassionate people on this planet who are able to, to deal with ghosts will help them to go on to their next body. And it's a really miserable situation being a ghost because Without a gross body, you can't interact with the world. So it's like, you know, you watch everybody eat pizza, and you can't eat it. So it's, it's a very frustrating experience to be a ghost. And, and some living beings stay in that ghostly situation for a very, very long time, and some for a very short time. So that's one reason why a person may not immediately reincarnate. It's a very unfortunate situation. But a very wonderful situation why you don't reincarnate is if you don't have any more material desires. Because the whole process of reincarnation is to fulfill material desires. You have a material desire, so you get a material body. Well, if you don't have any material desires, you don't get a material body. Because the way everything is designed is to respond to desires. In the sacred writing, the Ishopanishad, it says that God is the self-sufficient philosopher who's been fulfilling everyone's desires since the beginning of time. So if you don't desire anything in the world, there's no reason to get a body to be in the world. Well, you don't desire anything in the world. So does that mean that you're just nothing? You're just kind of blank? I just don't have any desires. <laughs> I have no thoughts. I mean, look, there are people who teach like that, who teach that perfection of spirituality is to have no thoughts, no feelings, and no desires. Well, my dear friends, if you have no thoughts, no feelings, and no desires, you're not any different than this piece of furniture. Okay, that would be the ex extinguishment of our very self. Now we tend to think that the self is the source of our suffering because our false self, this body and this mind, which are just like coverings on the real self, certainly give us a lot of trouble. Yes? Everybody's body give you trouble? Yeah? Does your mind give you trouble? Does your body give you trouble? Yes, exactly. So we may think that my real self, my real spiritual self, would also give me trouble, so let me not have any self. Uh, but Bhagavad Gita tells us that that's not really possible. You can't really extinguish all thoughts, feelings, and desires. Because we, those are symptoms of being alive. And we, the self, are eternally alive. We've been existed 
without beginning and without end. So when we say one has no more material desires, thoughts, or, or um, emotions, we mean that they've been substituted by spiritual thoughts, spiritual emotions, and spiritual desires. And these spiritual thoughts, emotions, and desires, the cultivation of which is the whole purpose of yoga. And the yoga that we in the Hare Krishna movement practice, bhakti yoga, has solely and completely as its goal to substitute spiritual thoughts, feelings, and desires for material thoughts, feelings, and desires. To reawaken our original spiritual thoughts, feelings, and desires. To reawaken our real self. And when we stop having any... Well, it's something like this. Like you could buy some seeds in a little paper packet. You know how they sell seeds of like flowers or vegetables in a little paper packet? And let's say you didn't open up the packet. Let's say you took the packet as it is and you put it in a glass of water. So the packet would dissolve and the seeds would sprout. Yes? The paper would dissolve. So the process of yoga, and originally the process of all religions and spiritual paths, although they tend to get distorted over time, is to dissolve the material mind and to awaken the spiritual mind and the spiritual body and the spiritual self. If you don't think any more material thoughts, material feelings, material desires, there's nothing to feed that material mind. That's what it's made of. So if you don't have them, the material mind actually dissolves. And if instead you're thinking spiritual thoughts, spiritual desires, spiritual emotions, then that starts nourishing our real self beyond this body, beyond this world. Then there's no need for any incarnating in a material body. Rather, our original spiritual body manifests. Our spiritual body is eternal, full of happiness, full of knowledge, beautiful, full of good qualities. That perfect self we'd all like to be, right? We have our idealized self. I mean, I have my idealized self. I have like that Ermila up there that I'd like to be. And then I have the Ermila that I confront every day. Do you have this sort of situation? Yes, you have this like, that's kind of the self I'd like to be, the qualities I'd like to have, the kind of person. Well, that idealized self, actually much better even than anything we can imagine in a material state, is who we really are. The reason we want to be that just awesome person is because we are that awesome person. It's just that we're covered with a material body and mind. But that's why, why would we have that desire? You know, I mean, the body isn't so cool. I mean, you're all very gorgeous, but do any of you look in the mirror in the morning and go, perfect? <laughs> yeah? Or would you take everything you thought today and put it on the internet for all your friends to read? I don't think so. So, you know, our, our false self is not very nice. So where, why do we have this desire to be this perfect self? Because we are a perfect self. The fact that we have that desire is evidence that this self is not us because this self is never going to be perfect. So our whole process of bhakti is to reawaken that self and stop this process of reincarnation. Now we explain that this process of reincarnation is really something like chewing old, chewing young. We're really just experiencing the same things over and over and over again in a little different way. Okay, let me try it as a man. Let me try it as a woman. Let me try it as an African. Let me try it as an American. Let me try it as a Chinese. Let me try it as a dog. Let me try it as a whale. And you can even go to other planets, and there are other life forms on other planets, and we can reincarnate. And then there are other planets described in our scriptures where people can fly without an airplane. And I mean, all kinds of interesting 
forms all over the universe. But, you know, you can try all these different things and then you see, but they're all masks. None of them are my real self. None of them really is that really awesome spiritual self that I want to be. So this process of bhakti yoga is meant to awaken the real self. And it's not that we... We're not really so interested in giving up material desires as simply cultivating the spiritual desires. When you cultivate the spiritual desires, the material desires naturally are finished. And therefore, we stop this cycle of reincarnation. So if we want to think about where we're going, what is our destination? Oh, I should also say, what's another nice thing about this understanding of reincarnation is not only does it explain the various disparities in the world, but it also is, I think, a much more reasonable and wonderful idea of God than just saying that everybody has this one little short life where we all start out at very different starting places, and you either have to get it together in this life or not get it together, and then you go to heaven or hell forever. That doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, I'm a mother and a grandmother, and I wouldn't do that to my kids. You know, I wouldn't say to my kid, any of my kids, you have five minutes, kiddo. You gotta get it together in five minutes, you get it together, and you'll have a great time, and you don't get it together, you're gonna suffer forever. So this life is very short, and we all start out at different places, don't we? Right? We don't all start off at the same place. So reincarnation is saying, no, there's there's an infinite variety of destinations after death according to our own actions and our own desires. And there's as many destinations as there are individuals. That everything is individual. Isn't that what we see? Don't we see that everything is very individual? Even this body, which is a temporary identity, it's not my eternal identity, I have different fingerprints than everybody else on the planet. And I have different fingerprints than anybody ever on the planet. And different DNA than everybody on the planet. Why would we see so much individuality? Every grain of sand is different. That isn't even alive. You know that if you look at a grain of sand under a microscope, every grain of sand is different. No one's ever found two grains of sand the same. And it doesn't, does it snow here in the winter? Do you get snow? Sometimes. Sometimes. You know, every snowflake is different, right? And that's just a matter. That's not even a lot. And every snowflake is different. How long does a snowflake last? Who even looks? So whoever made this world is really interested in variety. The amount of variety in this world is beyond comprehension. Do we all have more variety of food than we need to live? Do we need for our nutrients and our health all the varieties of vegetables and all the varieties of fruits and then the varieties of varieties? There's so many different kinds of bananas and so many different kinds of mangoes and so many different kinds of tomatoes. There's kinds of kinds. So this should tell us that whoever's running the show likes variety and likes individuality. The concept that there's only two possible destinations and those two destinations are eternal does not comport with what we see in the world. It does not comport with our, with our everyday experience. So our scriptures describe that there's many, many, many varieties of heavenly enjoyments that one can have after this life, many varieties of sufferings that one can have after this life, all of which are temporary, and all of which are simply another chapter in one's experience. 
All right, so if we would like to have some idea, where am I headed for? Where am I going? It might be a nice thing to know. Just like, you know, most of you in this room are in, are in school now. So you're in school with the idea, not just of having a grand time today in your classes, which I hope you do, but also you have an idea that you're preparing for something after school. So in this life, not only are we meant to be happy in this life, we certainly are meant to be happy in this life, but we should also be thinking about where am I going? And one way we can figure that out is, what do I spend my time on? Especially when I have my own time. What do I spend it doing? How do I spend whatever money I have? And what are my only ifs? And I was saying, oh, only if I had this, only if I had that, only if I had this, then I would be happy. Those should indicate to us about where we're going, what kind of future we're planning for ourselves. So, questions, comments? Yes? Well, this is very Yes. Whenever people lose track of religion, I come again. Or I send my representative. So it may be God himself incarnates on earth, or it may be some, one of his agents incarnates on earth. And one thing was very interesting that when I read the Bhagavad Gita, I, I was raised Jewish. And when I was 14, I read the New Testament for the first time, and I accepted Jesus as my Savior, although I never told my parents that. <laughs> they would not have liked that very much. Not even They never knew that to the last day they had. Uh, but then when I, when I, seriously. Why do you cause them such distress on the last day? I, no, they never knew. Uh, I never told them. The they, they never knew. Actually, it was really funny when, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, my mother said, at least you didn't become a Christian or a Muslim. <laughs> she said, at least the Hindus never persecuted the Jews. Okay, mom. But anyway, so I, I read the New Testament and I accepted Jesus as, as my personal savior. And then it was after that that I read the Bhagavad Gita. And one of the things that I kept thinking is, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You know, now what happens in religions is that things become distorted. And that happens in our tradition too, by the way. 
It's not that our tradition is we're immune from distortion. <laughs> no, that's not a fact. And we've had to have great teachers and God himself keep reappearing in order to bring everything back to purity. You know, in God's kingdom, that's not the case. In God's kingdom, in the spiritual world, nobody has to have a mop and a broom. But in the material atmosphere, you can't clean your room once and then it's clean, right? You know, brush your teeth once in your life or wash your body once in your life. You have to keep doing it. So, in the same way with systems of spirituality, they have to keep being purified. So what we see now is that, I mean, just to be frank, that most people teaching religion, whether it's, they're calling it Hinduism or Christianity or Judaism or Islam, they're mostly teaching, be a good person, be a pious person, pray to God, and you'll have a happy life in this world, and then you'll have a happy life after death, isn't it? And sometimes they teach, you'll get just total salvation and you'll be free of all your miseries. Those are the two basic things that most religions are teaching. Use God for your material enjoyment in this life and the next, or use God for your salvation. But if you look at the scriptures, what are they saying is the purpose? To love God with all your heart and all your soul. That's the essence. That's the essence. But how many places are you going to go? I don't care what religion they say there. How many places are you going to go where the person is going to get up and say, you know what the goal of this religion is, folks? To fall in love with God. That's the goal. Now, if you fall in love with God, you're going to be a happy person. You may not be a rich person. You may not be a healthy person. You may not be a beautiful person. You may not be a famous person. But boy, you're going to be a happy person. But you don't fall in love with God to be a happy person. You fall in love with God because it's wonderful to fall in love with God. And if you fall in love with God, you're going to be saved. You're going to be liberated. But you don't fall in love with God to be saved. That's not love. That's business. <laughs> love means I just want to make you happy. You know, thy will be done. That's there. Everybody's saying it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, please save my hands. Tell cancer. It's... So that's the, the problem. Also, we, we could say, frankly, um, I believe it's in Timothy, and I'm not an old Bible scholar, is uh, there's a statement about that all scripture is, is valuable. So that, that verse really does open the door that there can be other sacred writings. And, I mean, our own teachers tell us that any book, any scripture which encourages you to love God and encourages you to spirituality can be considered a kind of scripture. Right? I mean, and also, it's interesting when people say, when people use the verse, no one comes to the Father but through me, as meaning I can only learn from Jesus. But I, I say to them, well, don't you have a minister in your church? Do you learn from him? Well, he's not Jesus. But what does it mean, only through me? What does that mean? Does that mean that you can never... And you couldn't even read the Bible because the Bible wasn't written by Jesus, was it? Even the Gospels, written by John, Matthew, and Luke, right? They're written by other people telling you this is what Jesus said and this is what Jesus did. So even when you say you're going through Jesus, you're going through Jesus with the help of other people. So we in the Hare Krishna movement, we accept Jesus as our guru. And in fact, one of our main principles in chanting Hare Krishna one of the offenses to chanting, one way you actually you won't get any benefit from chanting it. And in my book there, I don't know if you can see it, I can't go to the link, I can just show you what it is. I, I talk about this. 
is to be blaspheming or offending anybody who's preaching the holy name of God and the glories of God. And, and my own spiritual teacher says, this means don't criticize Jesus and Mohammed. So one of the reasons that I personally came to this process is that my teacher was not, and is not, and he's not uh, physically with us on the planet anymore, sectarian. He wasn't saying, we're the only ones who have truth and everyone else is going to hell. He wasn't saying that. He's saying this is a process for finding the truth that's everywhere. That all the that has been taught in all the great religions, but tends to degrade over time. Is that all right? Um, I think we wanted to yes, please. And then we wanted to have a little demonstration of our champion, and then we have some delicious food. Yes, sir. I want to know the process of How long does it take a person to reincarnate? Oh, very good question. Does the person who reincarnated, is he or she able to tell during that process of reincarnation what happened? Oh, very good question. So there is descriptions, especially in one of our scriptures called the Bhagavatam, of this process of reincarnation. That what happens is higher entities in the universe come to assist the person with leaving their gross body. Now you still stay in your mental body until you're completely free of material desires You stay in your mental body. So you stay in your mental body and you leave that gross body and you're assisted by other entities. Now depending on your own desires and your own karma, the other entities who assist you, you might like them or you might not like them. Right? So that, that depends. So some people's journey out of their body is very unpleasant and some people's is very pleasant, depending on where they're going and what their mentality is. And then generally they bring you to, to a, a I hate to say a court, but something like that, where there's a, you review your life, and there's even some discussion, and like we have one story where this, this one person was taken to discuss with these higher beings, and they said, well, you, you've done so many wonderful things in your life, you have such a wonderful future, but you've also you made one or two mistakes for which you're going to have to pay for them. What would you want to do first? How do you want to arrange it? How do you want to experience your next life? So, I don't know if that happens with everybody, but there's some, there's some discussion and there's some um, working out. Now, if you're, if you're really on a very, I use the word low, but I don't know what else to put it. If, you, if you've lived your life more or less like an animal, and if most of your desires aren't animal-like, there are people who behave like animals, yes? So if, if that was your mentality, then it, it's, it doesn't quite involve so much of your participation because you're not operating on a very high level. So then you, you go through a conditioning process to prepare yourself for your next body. And how long does it take? Uh, we don't really have that much you know, indication specific, so I have to guess there you know, exactly how long it takes. Definitely in that period between lives and even when you're in the womb, you remember. So it's explained in the Bhagavatam that most, most people who incarnate as humans or higher than humans, there are higher entities than humans in this universe, that when they're in the womb, they can remember their past 100 lifetimes. And they understand the whole process. So that happens between bodies, where you're there with these higher entities that are working out with you what you've done and where you're going to go. And that's also true once you enter into a womb, that you're aware of your 100 lifetimes. Yes? I want to know, the person is able to reincarnate 
As many times as you have material desires. You can, you can keep taking material bodies for as long as you have material desires. And you will only stop reincarnating once you don't want to reincarnate anymore, basically. That's really what it comes down to. Once you say, okay, there's, there's really nothing more that I want to see or experience here. I think I want to come to my authentic self. I think I want to come to my real self. I want to find the reality. I'm tired of wearing one mask after another mask after another mask. Then it stops. Now that can stop after one birth in this world. And again, with the Bible, Jesus talks about the prodigal son who's with the father and then says, well, I think I want to take my inheritance and make my fortune somewhere else, right? So that's our story. Yeah, we, were, we were in the kingdom of God. We were with God. And we said, I, I think I'd like to check out something else. So now we can check it this, out, this place out for one lifetime. You can check it out for one lifetime and then go on. Or you can stay and check out different bodies for millions and billions of lifetimes if you want. That's entirely up to so, yes. Does the, the, according to the tradition, the Vedic tradition, the like, universe become dormant? Or? Yes. The universe goes through a period of dormancy and then again recreation. But that does, so you, that's a temporary lull. But what would happen like to the self during the dormancy? What happens to the self during the dormant stage is the self goes into a dormant state also. Okay. So the whole universe goes dormant and the self goes dormant and goes into a sleep-like state. And then when the universe is recreated, then you continue on where you left off. Okay. Yes? So nowadays you can get surgery, but it doesn't really make you into the opposite gender, yes? 
doesn't really, that in Mandino doesn't really make it. Sort of, kind of, but not really. So, you know, if you're a man and you really want to know what it's like to be a woman, you have to take body of woman. If you're a woman and you really want to know what it's like to be a body of man, then you have to take body of man. Does that make sense? Would, would um, the, the intensity of your desire say, um, not I want to be a man in my next life or something, would that now lead to like premature death in this body. No, no, because in this body you're still going to work out all the desires, all the other desires you've had in previous lifetimes. So those are going to come to fruition first. So you live. Yes. So, yes. so some of our desires are going to get fulfilled very quickly. And we also have this experience. Some things we want come to us very quickly in this life, yes? Some by working for them, and some people without working for them. Some things you want just kind of come to you, yes? And, and other things, you, you get them, but you have to work really hard for them. And some things in this life, you know, there's this kind of, this pretty story of the person who dies saying, I've done everything I want. I'm just peaceful. That's not real unless you're spiritually advanced, unless you're spiritually enlightened. If someone's not spiritually enlightened, when they're dying, they think, oh, if only I had done this, if only I had done Do you follow? So it's something like, you know, when you're a little kid, you think, oh, when I get to high school, then I'll be happy. When you're in high school, oh, when I get to college, then I'll be happy. When you're in college, oh, when I get a job, then I'll be happy. You know, when I get married, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. When my kids grow up, then I'll be happy, you know. <laughs> when I get this job, then I'll be happy. When I retire, then I'll be happy. And then when you're old, you think, oh, boy. If only I could do it over again. I have to do it so differently. In case people need to go, that's our um, Facebook page. So if you'd like to write it down, you can get information about our activities on campus. I'm going to hand this around. Please just write down your cell number if you'd like to get the SMS when we have activities on campus. Okay, I think what we should do now, because a lot of you have to go on, you can come talk to me personally if you like, but we have some books there. If you're really interested in finding out more about this philosophy, you can take some of these books home with you and study them. So we have the Bhagavad Gita, you can take, and there's also quite a lot in the Shopanishad. Uh, uh, this one, this is also a really good one, Laws of Nature. Right? And we also have, you all got something to eat. So thank you very much for coming, and if you have questions, then you can come talk to me, because I think most of you have to go. Can I ask, um, how is the design?